today on Against the Grain, sidewalks are for walking and a whole lot else. What's happening to sidewalks in this era of digitization and neoliberalization? I'm CS. The anthropologist Shannon Mattern joins me to discuss sidewalk history, planning, and politics. Coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. What doesn't happen on sidewalks? People walk there. They talk there. They set up shop. They sit or sleep. Public sidewalks are where folks come together, where different sorts of people interact, where personal, political, public, and private affairs are conducted, hashed out, negotiated. Shannon Mattern has written about the history of the sidewalk, She claims that we are entering a new era of sidewalk planning, use, and politics. Shannon Mattern is professor of anthropology at the New School for Social Research. Her essay, Sidewalks of Concrete and Code, is part of the new volume, Re-Understanding Media, Feminist Extensions of Marshall McLuhan, edited by Sarah Sharma and Riyanka Singh. Her most recent book is, A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences. When Shannon and I connected recently, I asked what prompted her to write her essay in Reunderstanding Media. So Google has a division, a subdivision called Sidewalk Labs that started several years ago that is essentially their urban tech division. So they're the organization within Alphabet, what is now called Alphabet these days, that focuses on using smart technologies, embedded sensors, cameras, etc., to optimize urban environments. And I have written about Sidewalk Labs. It has an office here in New York. They had done a project that... Um, folded a couple years ago, but they had tried to develop a city from the internet up in Toronto, Canada. Um, So I've been following this um, organization's work for the past several years, and I was invited to actually give a talk about it at the University of Toronto, I think in 2019, um, looking at public space and media. Uh, So I decided to focus on the Sidewalk Toronto project that was still in action. It was still in play at the time I gave this talk, and I wanted to historicize to see how Alphabet was using the sidewalk as a symbol, as a metaphor, as a muse for the work that it was doing, and to historicize the sidewalk itself as a space of communication and as a site for a lot of increasing amount of digital activity. So fair to say that contemporary developments that you find interesting spur you to look back to try and make sense of the past in an effort to evaluate the present? Absolutely. So most of my work starts with a contemporary prompt. I'm looking at something having to do with digital technology or something that's presented as a novel development, and I always like to historicize it. My 2017 book is called Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, colon, 5,000 Years of Urban Media. And there I'm looking at the concept of smart cities, urban intelligence, kind of connected environments, all of these forms of kind of urban living and urban design that we think have been made new or made possible by digital technologies. And I'm looking back essentially 5,000 years in history, drawing on a lot of work of archeologists, urban historians, classicists, um, uh, scholars in other fields, um, and practitioners in various spatial disciplines to see how cities have kind of embodied a lot of the things that we think of as new um, for the entire kind of duration of their existence. Um, So I've always been interested in kind of providing a historical context to what we think of as new media or the the supposed novelty of digital communications. So when I was looking at how Alphabet Google slash Google was using the sidewalk as a muse for its work in sidewalk labs, I absolutely wanted to think about what historical resonances they might have been drawing upon and maybe even kind of dishonoring through their very kind of presentist and futurist ways of thinking about public space. Do we know when sidewalks first appeared? So sidewalks have a several thousand year history. If we look to kind of uh, the work of classicists and archeologists, we can find kind of proto sidewalks existing even in an era before cars. So we're trying to find a space that separates out pedestrian traffic from traffic of kind of wheeled modes of transit, for instance. So there's a long history, a long global history of the sidewalk as a kind of a distinctive species of, of urban or um, public space. Um, 
if we start around 2000 BC or so in, um, in modern Turkey, Anatolia, sidewalks have existed there, and we see kind of various manifestations of them in various cultures, various historical periods. Um, most of the scholarship, most of the scholarship that I was able to find at least, is really focusing on kind of the, the rise of the modern city with increasing kind of commercial activity, uh, increasing transit, um, the, the division of space into kind of different kind of qualities of space. So um, the sidewalk as a distinctive kind of zone, um, most of the scholarship really focuses on on it uh, in regard to the modern city, but there is a very long, again, several thousand year history of sidewalks existing in multiple parts of the world. You write about sidewalks in 18th century Paris and about the emergence of gutters in London. Talk about that. So in the mid 18th century, as uh, we have kind of the rising public culture with people sitting at salons, cafes, activities spilling out into the street, we had this new kind of liminal zone being formed. Um, so this border territory, the sidewalk is a space that's mediating between kind of the traffic oriented, the machine oriented activity of the street and the kind of more public space activity that's happening in this liminal zone and the private activity that's happening inside the buildings that are bordering the sidewalk. So this is something we see kind of arising in mid-18th century um, Paris. Um, and then we also have the idea of the gutter, uh, which is really the quintessential liminal space. That's a space that has a whole lot of kind of cultural connotations attached to it. It's kind of rising out of the gutter or falling into the gutter. There are so many kind of socioeconomic and cultural um, valences that are attached to the gutter. Um, the gutter is really the place for those people who don't belong. So that this is where we see the sidewalk as being a space for kind of socioeconomic negotiation. Were there situations in which people of a certain social class were expected to leave the sidewalk to make way for other people of, of higher social class such that these lower class people would end up in the gutter? So yes, there were kind of protocols or conventions where uh, there were gender that were based on socioeconomic class. So those of a lower class were expected to make way, sometimes kind of root themselves into the gutter or step off of the curb to make way for the, the elites, essentially. So this is, again, where we see this continuing to today, this association between the gutter and the impoverished. Um, this is based on, again, centuries of embedded social codes about protocols of negotiating, of navigating around one another in public space. Is it correct that 19th century women in some locales needed an escort when walking the sidewalk? So yes, women often needed escorts. Uh, we see, for example, people of color. There's the whole history of the lantern laws, which other, other scholars, including Simone Brown, for instance, have written about, where uh, they have to essentially announce their presence with by carrying a light. So there are um, uh, people have to be accompanied by objects or other people to legitimate their existence on this supposed egalitarian public space of the sidewalk. And what about sidewalks as places where uh, people could speak out. And I'm thinking about marginalized people, oppressed people, um, as, I guess, nominally or theoretically public places. Were sidewalks an important venue for uh, agitation? Yes, so there's also a long history of, sp of sidewalks being spaces of communication, places for, again, I used that term egalitarian earlier, maybe if they weren't so egalitarian in terms of the, the modes of negotiation, bodies moving in relation to each other, they were kind of a, a hinted at the possibility for egalitarian forms of communication. We have, for example, like shopkeepers who might not be kind of at the upper echelons of socioeconomic, uh, socioeconomic rungs of their cultures or their societies, being able to put... Um, Print, the, the rise of print culture. So uh, shop windows, people placing kind of proto sandwich boards on the sidewalk. We also have a long history of with the rise of public print forms, um, the newspaper, broadsides, etc., being plastered on public spaces and posts and kiosks around the sidewalk. Um, in the early days of the mass press, the newspaper would often post kind of the fresh off the press version in a public space where people would gather on the sidewalk around it and read it together. So here we have an early, early examples of the sidewalk being used as a space of uh, public discussion around kind of a printed object. We also have a long history of the sidewalk being used as a place for oral communication, for protest, for 
um, both dominant and marginalized communities gathering in this liminal space to make their voices heard. That's Shannon Mattern. She's professor of anthropology at the New School for Social Research. We were talking about an essay she contributed to a new volume, Re-Understanding Media, Feminist Extensions of Marshall McLuhan. Her essay is called Sidewalks of Concrete and Code. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. I think of the ways in which restaurants during COVID have added sidewalk tables. And of course, sidewalk tables were uh, ubiquitous in many locations before the pandemic. Uh, Has that historical roots, was that done by shop owners in previous eras? Yes, this is another example of this public space being inhabited with private commerce. So there's a long history of grocers and other types of merchants, uh, hawkers, uh, newspaper vendors, for instance, extending their commercial activity out into the public space of the sidewalk. So that's something that we see has existed for, I'm not sure exactly when it began officially, but I would imagine hundreds of years. And we see ever more kind of new manifestations of it. Uh, This is often a space of kind of marginalized commercial activity. Uh, We have um, people who are living on the margins of economic systems, who are selling kind of secondhand goods. We see this all the time in cities like New York, where I live, where we have folks who set up their tables who are selling used books, magazines, things they might extract from the trash in kind of wealthy apartment buildings, for instance, this kind of secondhand economy. We also have sex work, uh, this long history of sex work that happens on the sidewalk. Again, kind of an illicit or shadow form of economy that happens in the public space of this liminal zone of the sidewalk. Yeah, and, and how important, you know, in general, do you see sidewalks as sites of socialization, as sites where people, different kinds of people come together, um, not necessarily voluntarily, I guess, but they they have to use the sidewalk maybe to get to where they want to go. You know, how important is that um, as a way of, of bringing people together? Well, if you look to an urban theorist like Jane Jacobs, where she talks about the ballet of the sidewalk, she would say that the sidewalk is one of these kind of great leveling sites, the space where people of different walks of life, different cultures, different backgrounds, different purposes, different kind of socioeconomic classes are all coming together in this mode of navigation. And for her, like the choreography is both kind of a literal form of dance, bodies dancing around one another, but it's also kind of a form of social weaving together of of the the mixing that makes a city a vibrant and heterogeneous space. some of this this uh, mixing is kind of compromised a bit when we have increasing privatization of public spaces. We have things like the rise of business improvement districts of many, many neighborhoods. Many of the commercial areas here in New York have their own dedicated business improvement districts with a sidewalk team that is responsible for keeping the street clean, picking up trash, um, uh, you know, kicking up fallen leaves, but then also in many cases doing things like rousing homeless people or people who don't have authorized use for some of those maybe more marginalized economic activities. So there are kind of privatized systems that are challenging uh, this kind of more organic form of mixing that we might see in a less regulated sidewalk. What is your sense of, let's say, municipalities? ability or willingness over time to enforce the public nature of sidewalks, to put limits on the degree to which these kinds of public spaces can be privatized, Uh, you know, to say, no, um, you can't do that, or this corporation or business that has a storefront on this area of sidewalk, uh, in front of this area of sidewalk, can't do that. I mean, obviously, making sidewalks public or keeping sidewalks public does require some kind of enforcement in the face of other factors and the the players, the economic and social players you've been talking about, right? Right. I just want to start by pointing out that privatizing the sidewalk isn't just a matter of having physical things, um, like placing physical goods or commercial goods there or explicitly engaging in commercial activity. There are more ambient ways of privatizing a sidewalk as well. One of my colleagues, Jonathan Stern, who's a sound studies scholar, wrote an article that's become canonical. I think he published it maybe 20 years ago or now about kind of the soundscapes of places like the Mall of America, where if you walk past um, a shop like 
Abercrombie and Fitch is a really canonical example for me. So even in the summertime, they have the doors wide open and the air conditioning is blasting out into the street. The soundtrack from inside is cranked up and the sound is kind of wafting or, or leaking out into the street. And then they have, I'm not sure exactly what their signature fragrance is, but it's kind of this really overpowering kind of Axe body spray type fragrance that is also leaking out into the street. So there you have these multiple ambient forms of kind of beckoning you in to engage in commercial activity. So that we might say is a more ambient form of privatizing the public space of the sidewalk that many businesses do. Especially we see it, it's kind of made very pop, literally palpable in the summertime when we feel the chill of air conditioning kind of just flowing out of these hyper over air conditioned stores onto a sweltering city street. But in terms of like how likely or willing municipalities are to regulate and oversee these activities, um, obviously having vibrant commercial activity is in many cases central to drawing people into public space. So it's not as if private activity is inimical to the cultivation of a vibrant public space. I think COVID has also really kind of moved the goalposts or changed people's expectations. We realize that for the sake of survival of many commercial spaces, for restaurants to be able to survive, in many cases, people's beloved mom and pop local neighborhood restaurants, for them to be able to persist throughout the pandemic, they had to uh, occupy public space to move their commercial activity. So I think that there are some people's expectations, understandings, um, willingness to condone some of these commercial activities or private activities shifted a bit during the pandemic because realized that the survival of vital neighborhood anchors depended upon it. I'll also say that I work a lot with public libraries. That's been a, a research topic and kind of source of public action for me for the past 20 years or so. Um, in many of our library board meetings over throughout the pandemic, um, we found that a lot of our urban libraries have really re-embraced public space, both maybe rooftop gardens, but also kind of moving reading rooms out into the sidewalk or into the kind of a claiming a lane of traffic just off the sidewalk. There, that was essential for reminding people that your public institutions are still here serving you and gave people a place to come together into a public space that is an extension of the public space of the sidewalk. So it wasn't just kind of commercial private businesses that were co not co-opting, but using or repurposing the sidewalk throughout the pandemic. It was some public institutions who were using it in kind of creative and maybe affirming and vitalizing ways as well. You bring up in your essay, feminist urban planning. What sorts of things has feminist urban planning addressed over the years? And to what extent are those things, those issues relevant to discussions about sidewalks? So as you can tell from the, the, the book we're talking about today, about an essay that I wrote for a book called Re-Understanding Media, colon, Feminist Extensions of Marshall McLuhan. So for anyone who might not know, Marshall McLuhan was really a, a central media theorist. Some people regard as one of the, not the first person to theorize, critically theorize media, but one of the first people to really propose that the study of media could be a discipline all in itself. And... Um, he was a man, obviously, as the name Marshall might imply, and uh, this book is really rethinking a lot of the canonical kind of material approaches to media studies, but through a feminist lens to think about how we might rewrite some of these histories, identify some of their shortcomings or gaps of understanding by rethinking them through the perspectives of people with different subjectivities. So in this case, I wanted to rethink the sidewalk. Um, as a space, we discussed earlier how, for example, there were gendered codes of how women needed to be accompanied by men and how people of different kind of identities needed to subserviate or negotiate around kind of the elite on the sidewalk. I really wanted to see what we could learn from feminist planners, feminist architects, to think about how they thought of the sidewalk as a distinctive space uh, and how some of the principles underlying feminist planning, for instance, might change the way we have historicized sidewalks and the way we think about them in the future. So one of the central thinkers on feminist planning or thinking in a through a feminist lens about cities is a woman named Dolores Hayden, who in 1980 wrote an essay called What Would Non-Sexist Cities Look Like? And there, we, she's really calling our attention to the fact that we've built a lot of our understanding of how cities work, how cities are planned, how they're administered through these false distinctions between public and private, city and suburb, which are really based on the understanding of kind of a man who goes home to the family, to the nuclear family, and then takes the train into the city center. 
This is not historically mapped on to the types of labor that women have done, especially if you look at things like care labor, um, home health care aides, uh, daycare workers, dog walkers, anybody who provides care work, they're not really following those same kind of masculine white collar work modes of transit. So a lot of feminist planners are encouraging us to think about how just denaturalizing the whole center periphery, city suburb, public private um, notions, and also thinking about how do we make sure cities are safe for women? How are they accessible? How are they as inclusive as possible? How do they facilitate sharing economies in addition to kind of commercial activity? All of these things that kind of feminist thinkers have historically thought about. How do we build a space that really fosters those? I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Shannon Matthern is my guest, M-A-T-T-E-R-N. She teaches anthropology at the New School for Social Research. She's the author of a number of books, including A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences, and Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, 5,000 Years of Urban Media. We were talking about an essay she wrote for the new volume, Re-Understanding Media. Her essay is called Sidewalks of Concrete and Code, and it extends and draws upon a lot of the research that went into a number of her other books, including A City is Not a Computer. We could speak much more, of course, about feminist urban planning, devote a whole program to it. And I think the point of your article, your essay, in part, is to see how the use of sidewalks, maybe especially in the contemporary conjuncture, aligns or doesn't align with feminist urban principles. And if that's the case, what sort of feminist urban principles do you think are key toward thinking about sidewalks in in an appropriately uh, social justice-oriented way? So I think I've already mentioned some of them, like fostering inclusivity, accessibility, um, spaces of sharing, public services, I've already mentioned a few of the examples of, you know, uh, like public libraries, for instance, kind of spilling out to the street. It's not to say that these things are germane or useful only to women. That's not what it means to be feminist. It's just recognizing kind of a different set of values or that different forms of sociality are just as meaningful as kind of capitalist commercial types of activity that we should be planning for caregiving and maintenance and repair and um, kind of communal forms of living, kind of so sustainable forms of cohabitation as well. So these are the types of things that should be kind of informing our foundational principles of urban planning. This is kind of what feminist planners tend to remind us of. So in your essay, again, it's called Sidewalks of Concrete and Code, You write that we're entering a new era of sidewalk planning, use, and politics. And you began uh, this hour by referring to uh, Alphabet Inc., which launched a sidewalk labs division in 2015. Why did, what do we know about why uh, that company uh, launched this division, launched this uh, area of uh, inquiry and initiative? Sidewalk Labs is, I mentioned earlier, the urban tech division of Alphabet, which we used to know as Google. I think it was a very, it was um, a charismatic, highly relatable, pleasant association to make. It's hard to dislike the sidewalk and all of the positive cultural connotations that it carries with it. So Sidewalk Labs, it's almost kind of a placating gesture, saying like, yes, we're bringing all this new technology, all this surveillance technology. We're going to be codifying and monetizing everything. But we're still drawing on the foundational kind of historically rooted principles of what makes a sidewalk a vibrant space. So in a way, it was a rhetorical move to evoke the sidewalk, this familiar urban forum that everybody can use, that's supposedly open to everyone that everybody loves. Dan Doktoroff, who was a former deputy mayor of New York City, uh, the former chief of Sidewalk Labs, says that he really loved the sidewalk as a model or a muse because it embodies a rich mix of different forms of transit, of different kind of entities altogether. So I think this was a perhaps there could they could genuinely be wanting to kind of emulate or to support this long history of sidewalks being this kind of fulcrum of vibrant activity, but wanting to find new technologized and monetized ways of doing it. But also, as I mentioned as well, it's it's a bit of a rhetorical maneuver to help to 
bring along an audience who might perhaps be threatened by concerned about the privacy concerns of a lot of these new digital technology applications. And what has Sidewalk Labs said about the the benefits, the specific benefits to be gained by gathering data about sidewalk activity and conditions? So if we gather exhaustive, kind of comprehensive data about how a sidewalk, which is, again, we've discussed is a kind of a liminal space, we gather a lot of data about transit, about urban systems, about waste, for instance, but the sidewalk is kind of that in-between space that we sometimes tend to overlook, the space we pass through to get somewhere else. But Sidewalk Labs is organizing that if we can datify all these other things, our streetlights, our garbage trucks, our trains, etc., we should be finding ways to optimize our use of sidewalks as well. And this allows us to manage and monetize this strip of public-private space in more kind of optimized ways. Um, it can allow for cities to share data with different agencies because a sidewalk is a space of mediation, as we've discussed. It could be a way, a form of translation between what's happening in commercial space and the public space. So if we datify the sidewalk, it could be a space of communication between different agencies who have, an invest, have a vested interest in the sidewalk. It's kind of the zone that unifies or the space where their different activities come together. It could also facilitate planning uh, and a better deployment of public services. So they're, they're proposing, Sidewalk Labs that is, is proposing multiple ways that we can uh, really exploit the in-betweenness of the sidewalk as a space that facilitates interaction between multiple public and private city entities and makes things work more efficiently. Sidewalk Labs is also interested in, in curbs, right? Yes. So not only is the sidewalk this kind of liminal space that we tend to look over, it's kind of one of what the anthropologist uh, Marc Auger would call a non-place. It tends to be a place that we just walk through to get somewhere else. But the curb is even more marginal. The curb is kind of like the margin to the margin. The curb is just the, the little lip of space that marks the transition from the public human and um, kind of foot-powered modes of transit of the sidewalk to the more vehicular models of transit that we find on the street. And Sidewalk Labs wants to monetize the curb uh, because there are all kinds of economies that come together at the curb, especially with the rise of, for example, kind of delivery workers, rental uh, bikes, and rental scooters. We saw, again, with the throughout the pandemic, just the explosion of delivery services, the fact that people's everyday lives, their survival dependent upon the provision of the, the arrival of Amazon boxes, kind of the delivery of food through Grubhub and the types of delivery services. Um, so the curb is really this point of margin, this transition zone between the public and private where multiple industries, public and private agencies, entities come together. So that's in part why Sidewalk Labs sees the curb as this really important part of kind of exchange. That's the voice of Shannon Mattern. She teaches anthropology at the New School for Social Research. Her books include The New Downtown Library, Designing with Communities, and Deep Mapping the Media City. And we are talking about an essay she contributed to a new volume edited by Sarah Sharma and Riyanka Singh. It's called Re-Understanding Media, Feminist Extensions of Marshall McLuhan. The book is published by Duke University Press. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain. This monetizing and, I think in company lingo, maximizing of sidewalks, how does this align with neoliberalism, with uh, policies and priorities advanced by neoliberal planners? So neoliberalism is largely about, which is a word that's been bandied about with multiple meanings, very elastic meaning, but it tends to boil down to kind of the prioritization of market value uh, over all other forms of value. And here, um, if we are trying to find ways to monetize, to optimize, to marketize, to monetize the sidewalk, that's kind of a quintessential application of of, of neoliberalism because we're valuing the sidewalk and its potential to make money, to cultivate data to be optimized to its most efficient possible uses, rather than celebrating the fact that it's a space of kind of unplanned, often productively messy, unpredictable, 
and a beautiful poetic activities. That's really what Jane Jacobs, for instance, again, to use another canonical theorist who thinks about sidewalks, she's really looking at kind of the, in many cases, the non-neoliberal dimensions of the sidewalks, what she's celebrating. Um, although she does talk about the role of kind of the, the trusted shopkeepers, the kind of the neighborhood proprietors and their value to public life, to sidewalk culture. But when we try to optimize every square inch of the sidewalk so that you can deploy a scooter, a delivery vehicle, um, decide exactly where you need to kind of the logistics of delivery, um, you take away all of that poetry and you regard it entirely as a terrain to be mapped, quantified and monetized. So this is, again, kind of the, the quintessence of neoliberalism. You referred earlier to a proposal to redesign a stretch of sidewalk and curb in Toronto. So this is in uh, 2017, Sidewalk Labs. This, again, is a project of Alphabet Inc. Announced plans to do this. What did it propose and how was it received? Well, I think you're referring to Sidewalk Labs' principle of the dynamic curb, um, which wasn't just going to be one stretch of sidewalk. This was going to be an urban planning principle that was implemented throughout Sidewalk Toronto. And Sidewalk Labs wanted Sidewalk Toronto to be kind of a prototype city, a city that was a test bed where they could then deploy the lessons they learned there, scale it up, scale it down, ship it around the world to be kind of a, a form of urban software that you could then implement in multiple places around the world. So the dynamic curb was supposed to be kind of a non-curb. So instead of having that lip on the sidewalk, the curb that's elevated a few inches to separate the human terrain of the sidewalk from the vehicular terrain of the street, instead, you're really relying on technology to make that spatial distinction for you. One of the ways that we're gonna do that is to essentially do things like use data capture on our cell phones, on our self-driving cars, on kind of um, tagged scooters, everything would have a, be a data generator. All moving bodies and entities would be data generators that would allow a city to understand when we have kind of uh, the highest forms of traffic flow, when things are a bit lighter, we could maybe repurpose a street for a public gathering space, um, when streets could be switched from uh, going in one direction to another direction, depending upon influx um, and, and outflux for people coming into work and out of work. So it's really drawing on these live data flows that help us to understand the uses of our cities to allow them to adapt in real time to be used in ways that uh, increase efficient transit and maybe even optimize public uses. Uh, so you could essentially have people taking over a street if it's not kind of a time of heavy, heavy vehicular traffic. And again, we're using data capture and mapping to be able to decide what these optimal uses are. And then you would use kind of digital beacons of some sort in the physical space to let people know how space is being kind of purposed or repurposed in a given time. So you could have colored lights in the street. You could have these kiosks I was talking about. They kind of offer cues or annotations to say like, you know, Green Street is now a public park for the afternoon. So using various forms, again, this, this long history of the, the sidewalk as a mediating site to tell us how the sidewalk's use changes, the sidewalk and the street's use changes throughout the day, across days of the week, across seasons, uh, to optimize or to allow for it to be used in different ways. Would the data gathering also come from sensors actually directly embedded in sidewalks? Yes, so if you look at Sidewalk Lab's plan, their data plan for sidewalk, they are really using, taking full advantage of the fact that sidewalk is part of Alphabet. Alphabet has ways, they have mapping, they have self-driving cars, they have uh, virtual reality, they have um, so many entities, all of which are forms of capturing and kind of coalescing multiple data streams. So there, uh, the dynamic curve would really be taking full advantage of the multiple forms of data collection that Alphabet's multiple entities could afford. So it would involve sensors embedded in the sidewalk, I'm sure surveillance cameras, the fact that many of us are using kind of Google Maps on our phones, that data then being fed into some Uber map um, kiosks on the street, that are perhaps serving as an infrastructural element in directing self-driving cars, but also uh, having 
embedded beacons for surveillance, um, keeping track of how many connected cell phones are within the vicinity. So all of these myriad forms of data collection would be facilitating this flexibility of the dynamic curve. So to go back to your earlier question as to how the public responded to this proposal, I mean, the whole idea of a dynamic curve is not really a new idea. This has been uh, deployed in the Netherlands for quite a while, for a few decades, where urban planners have found that by decreasing the separation between the curb and the street, it actually encourages drivers to slow down um, and promotes uh, safer conditions for everybody. If we don't have that convenient barrier of the curb or in New York City, we have the bike lane that allows people this kind of this buffer zone between the dangerous territory of the street and the more humane territory of the, of the sidewalk. Instead, if you kind of blend those zones a bit more, it encourages greater responsibility from all parties. So this is a planning principle that has been in existence and has worked I mean, I haven't done ethnographic research to see it, but it's a celebrated principle. Um, so if there is a historical precedent here, but Sidewalk's version of it would, re would be a really data-driven approach. So the principle is, you know, uh, um, has positive public connotations. The idea that you're building a more humane environment, that you're promoting more responsible vehicle use, those are good things. The challenge is, and this was really one of the main sources of the downfall of the Sidewalk Toronto project is all of that data collection and uh, the management of that data. Who would own it? How would it be protected? How would people's privacy be protected? So it's really that tech-centric nature of this curbless planning principle that was uh, created great public concern. Something called Amazon Sidewalk was launched in the fall of 2019. Uh, what do we know about the focus of that initiative and what role does the surveillance of sidewalks and other spaces play in it? So it was kind of coincidental that as I was writing this article, Amazon, not Google, I was kind of inspired to write this, this chapter by the existence of sidewalk labs. But then coincidentally, as I was trying to find a conclusion to, the, to this chapter, um, Amazon launched a new product called Amazon Sidewalk which is a low bandwidth network that is, that connects lots of Internet of Things devices in and around the home. So there, they're drawing on these positive history connotations of the sidewalk to familiarize people with the idea that connected technologies could cultivate new forms of public space. And here, they really want to use this community kind of low powered network to unify multiple forms of smart technologies, everything from our lights, speakers in our homes, doorbells, water sensors, dog tags, mailbox sensors in our mailboxes. So connecting all of these different uh, smartified objects in our neighborhoods to speak to one another um, to provide, again, more optimized conditions supposedly, as the branding kind of um, leads us to believe, to cultivate kind of a more connected neighborly form of culture. But just as Sidewalk Lab's use of technology cultivated a bit of concern about the ubiquity of surveillance and the potential misuse of this data, we see the same potential risks with Amazon Sidewalk. So while it's intended to promote this form of kind of neighborly connectivity, we also have seen historical precedent of some of these network technologies being used for rather unneighborly ends or for nefarious purposes. There's been a good amount of critique of things like Amazon's Ring, for instance, which is kind of a smart doorbell with a camera embedded in it that has cultivated kind of a fear of the stranger or even people reporting on their neighbors. So just this hypervigilance that actually promotes a form of suspicion of one's neighbors, not cultivating the form of kind of sidewalk ballet, that again, to reference the, the Jane Jacobs kind of poetic formulation, but instead using these ring technologies to surveil our neighbors, to report any seemingly suspicious activity, to assume nefarious purposes or kind of ulterior motives from our neighbors, just to cultivate an air of suspicion. So this is, um, these are some of the risks of having a neighborhood kind of unified through these smart gadgets, through um, Amazon's kind of manifestation of the sidewalk. Shannon Mattern joins me. She teaches anthropology at the New School for Social Research. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Our coded and monetized and, and quote, optimized sidewalks, you argue, 
effect something similar to the explosion and separation that Marshall McLuhan claimed happened with the advent of the motor car. What did McLuhan mean by explosion and separation? So Marshall McLuhan, as I mentioned earlier, was a media theorist who often had some kind of little rubrics for understanding how media worked. Uh, one of his models was called the tetrad, where he is asking, when we are approaching or analyzing a medium, we ask things like, what does it enhance? What does it make obsolete? What does it retrieve that might have been obsolesced earlier? Or what does it reverse or flip when we push it to its extreme? We kind of accelerate its development. Does it flip over into, some, into something maybe that existed before? For example, like the, the bullhorn enhances the voice, for instance. So he's arguing, I'm just going to read a little passage here, that when the motor car was new, it exercised the typical mechanical pressure of explosion and separation of functions. So McLuhan is often arguing that every time we have a new medium, that it kind of enhances, obsolesces. Here he's using the term exploding and separating out things. So when we have a new technology that reshapes our culture, it kind of creates new divides or calls attention to exacerbates kind of inequities or divisions that might have existed in kind of a more more covert form before the existence of the new medium. So he's saying that with the existence of the motor car, it breaks up the family life, or so it seemed, in the 1920s. It separated work and domicile as never before. It exploded each city into a dozen suburbs and then extended many of the forms of urban life along the highways until the open road seemed to become nonstop cities. So there he's arguing of the ways that the motor car enhanced and obsolesced pre-existing uh, social forms. So it broke up family life. So it allowed for the husband to kind of drive into the city, um, leaving the carless housewife out of the suburbs. So there that's a form of kind of enhancing of gendered divisions, we might say. It's separated work and domicile. So because you have um, have an increased distance, because the car decreases frictions of distance, you could potentially drive a longer distance to work. So it really is kind of is allowing for an elasticity of separation between our spaces of work and home. Whereas, as you know, for much of history, our spaces of work were typically in the home. The car allows for that, that separation, that extension, that kind of pushing of extreme of separation between work and domicile. And it allowed our cities to explode. So our cities exploded through sprawl. The car really exacerbates kind of the, the fractalization, the separation, the metastasization of urban sprawl. So these are some of the, his somewhat hyperbolic language of using um, explosion and separation. So these are the, the familial, the domestic, and kind of the urban morphological ways that the motor car enhanced and exploded these familiar constructs. And would your argument be then that this new era of sidewalk politics and planning uh, related, of course, partly to the rise of telecommunications technologies, surveillance technologies, constitutes a, something that Marshall McLuhan might call explosion and separation? I would say so. I think there are certain uh, phenomenon, certain trends that have exploded. Just the idea that we can find means of monetizing all forms of public space, even the most kind of seemingly liminal and unimportant, everything from the sidewalk itself to the curb. So this hyper-commercialization, neoliberalization, to use a term we used earlier, I think it's also enhancing, and, and I don't mean that in a positive connotation, it's kind of exacerbating social divisions. There's been a lot of scholarship that looks at the racial inequities that are built into surveillance technologies, the fact that certain populations are much more heavily surveilled and targeted and tracked than others. So with the ubiquitous tracking, uh, the fact that all inches of our public spaces are going to be filtered or, or layered, embedded with these tracking technologies, it can just increase the chances for and exacerbate the phenomenon of this inequitable forms of of surveillance and tracking. So it's in, in a way enhancing, exacerbating forms of social division. So this essay, we've been talking about sidewalks as part of this new volume, Re-Understanding Media. Uh, this draws, as I mentioned, on themes that were investigated and articulated in your book, A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences, which came out last year. Um, what about that book, and specifically, I think about sort of smart city logics and data-driven urbanism, do you 
do you want to emphasize in the time we have remaining? Well, just as we discuss the, the value gain from potentially looking at feminist forms of planning, indigenous forms of planning, recognizing that there are historical uses of sidewalks um, that are potentially lost or threatened by their datification and monetization and optimization. So just looking at these other ideologies, other value system, other forms of intelligence, other methodologies. This was the subtitle of my book from last year, Other Urban Intelligences, where I'm arguing that if we want to think about what makes a city smart, it's not just all of the digital technologies and data-driven applications. There are forms of intelligence, of knowing, of wisdom, of serendipity, of beauty, of poetry, of kind of kindness and care, things that matter just as much as optimization and efficiency that uh, draw on these things that don't lend themselves to datification. Rather than reifying or assuming that the digital, the newest technology is always the optimal form, it's always the most efficient and effective, recognizing that in many cases, older technologies, analog technologies, uh, kind of embedded long history, social kind of social patterns and, and ways of being together in communities are just as valued and can perhaps live in tandem with, symbiotically with responsible uses of new technologies. So recognizing the sidewalk as a, as a space of serendipity, it's a space of kind of egalitarian gathering that we talked about. Um, maybe there are responsible ways, inclusive ways that technologies can be used to enhance those qualities, but we don't want these of technology to essentially destroy uh, these history functions. So reminding people to think about the analog and the digital in tandem and to recognizing that smartness is not sufficient in and of itself. We have to look at these other value systems and other modes of practice and other forms of intelligence. And that's what makes a city kind of the rich and heterogeneous and vital place that it is. How does the sidewalk and talking about the sidewalk bring together many or maybe all of the themes you just mentioned that are part of, of your book? So that's a really nice question to end with here. So as we've discussed um, in the chapter about the sidewalk, I look at the sidewalk as itself a medium, a space that kind of is in an intermediary position between public and private, between kind of human and machine. Um, it's a space for mediated activity where we have billboards and kiosks and barkers and all different types of communicative activity happening. So the sidewalk itself is also, in a way, kind of a, a site of mediation for many of the themes that I talk about in the 2021 book. So there I have four chapters. The first one is about dashboards, urban dashboards, the idea that we have this kind of one screen on which we can monitor and track all of the meaningful urban activities to enhance their efficiency and to optimize them, which is in part related to the whole idea of kind of codifying the curb and optimizing uses of the sidewalk. In the second chapter of the book, I talk about metaphors of the city as a computer and what we gain and lose by thinking about the city operating in the same way. The city is something that can be computed and something that operates like a computer. Um, here we see the risks uh, in the sidewalk chapter of thinking about the sidewalk as something or the curb as something that can be codified and the potential risks of losing sight of all the important, valuable social value, cultural value, political economic value of recognizing the stuff that happens in a sidewalk, the social roles it serves, the architectural urban roles it serves that don't lend themselves to counting, quantification, optimization, all that messy kind of poetic stuff, the mingling that happens there. The third chapter in the book is about libraries, where I'm looking at if we want to value smart technologies and data-driven modes of operation, we have to realize that our libraries actually serve as an embodiment, a recognition that there are multiple forms of intelligence, kinds of wisdom that exist in a city and that form the history of a city and make it a valuable kind of an, and smart, wise space. And this is, these are some ideas we've talked about in relation to the sidewalk, too. The fact that there are multiple forms of media activity, multiple forms of communication, different voices get heard on a sidewalk, um, that there are multiple ways of knowing and understanding what makes a healthy sidewalk. So this kind of mix of methodologies and epistemologies embodied in the library, we see kind of played out in action on the sidewalk. Then the final chapter of the book is about maintenance and how we have to recognize that 
when we think of digital technologies, smart technologies, we are always thinking kind of in an innovation mindset when actually we have to think about maintenance and repair and care as well. Um, and that these two are not dumb because they're not digitized, uh, are always data-driven, but they can be enhanced. These maintenance activities can be enhanced through data-driven methodologies responsibly applied as well. And we also talked a bit about how sidewalks are spaces that have to be maintained um, and that there's a lot of kind of wisdom, inherent neighborhood wisdom, kind of the, the value of people sitting on a stoop, understanding their, their sidewalk culture from living in a, you know, multiple generations of living in a, in a home somewhere, um, long-term inhabitants of a neighborhood, all those forms of wisdom that are inherent to maintaining um, and repairing sidewalk culture. So some nice parallels between the individual chapters of the book, and they all kind of coalesce in this choreography of the sidewalk itself. Shannon Mattern, again, M-A-T-T-E-R-N, an anthropologist based at the New School for Social Research. Her books include The New Downtown Library, Deep Mapping the Media City, and Code and Clay, Data and Dirt, her most recent book, published last year, is A City is Not a Computer, Other Urban Intelligences. Uh, Shannon, thank you so much for your work and for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>